Hello, church. It is good to be with you again. Today, we are jumping back into our New Testament series in which we are taking books of the Bible and looking at them from a very high-level viewpoint. We are trying to tease out the main themes, uh, the general points of each of these texts, some of the context of that book, so that when we go to read the books, whether it be individually during a devotional time or within a small group, we can have an idea of the larger picture so that we don't get lost in the minute details or the verse-by-verse reading, which we can so often do, that we understand the context within which each of those verses or passages fall. Today we are looking at the book of Hebrews, which is a dense, complex book full of Old Testament reference and theology, um, full of a rethinking about who God is and what was going on in light of Jesus and what this whole idea of this new covenant is. Um, And it is one of those books which is very easy to get lost in the verse-by-verse reading. And so, as I said, the purpose of this series is to make us understand what those larger purposes are. And the main point I want to make today in our talk, it comes out of Hebrews in particular the introduction, which is what we're going to spend most of our time dealing with today, is that Jesus is the key. Jesus is the key that unlocks all of the rest of it exactly why will become evident as we have our conversation today. But I want you to think for just a moment about the story in Luke, the road to Emmaus, when we have two of Christ's disciples walking back after the events that have taken place at the crucifixion, trying to make sense of everything that has happened. They can't understand it. And in the midst of their discussion and their worrying about how to make sense of all of it, Jesus appears to them. And we're told that Jesus in that discussion opens their eyes to all the scripture, that Jesus is the one who makes sense of all of it. That is the point that I want to make today, ultimately, is that it is Jesus that makes sense of everything else. It is in understanding who Jesus is, what he did, understanding his character, his person, his actions, that we then go back to the rest of the text, that we then go to the Old Testament, that we then go to the the rest of the New Testament, the letters, and we can make sense of all of that only once we understand who, who Jesus is. And ultimately that tells us who God is. Before we get too far into that conversation, however, let's take a step back and talk just a little bit about the book of Hebrews in general. The author is someone who we don't know. For a while it was held that Paul had written this letter, but we know now that that was not the case. It was most likely written before the destruction of the temple. It was most certainly given references in the text itself, written before about 90 or 95. So we know it was in the first century. There is a rhetorical question in the text about sacrifices, which seems to indicate that sacrifices were still going on, which is why a lot of scholars will tell you that it was written probably in the 60 to 65 period, several years before the fall of the temple. If the temple had already fallen, the sacrifices would no longer be taking place, and that question that's in the, in the text wouldn't itself make sense. The book itself is very much about Christology, which is a term we've used before, but if it's new to you, that is the study of Christ. And as we use it in reference to the New Testament, Christology, we would say something has a high Christology or a low Christology. That is a way to signify what the book or text has to say about Christ and particularly his divinity. And so in saying Hebrews has a high Christology, what we're saying is, it is very explicit in the fact that Jesus is God. In fact, that's the point of Hebrews. We can contrast this to something like one of the Gospels, Mark, for example, in which the implication certainly is there. There are statements that lead us to know, and knowing that Jesus is God, we can see it there, but there isn't an overt claim to it. John, in contrast, opens his Gospel by telling us that in the beginning there was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and that the Word was made flesh. 
and dwelt among us. It is his way of telling us that Jesus was, is the eternal word, the second member of the Trinity, and it was that person of God, the second person that was made flesh, incarnated in Jesus. And so John, in contrast to something like Mark, has a very high Christology. He's very overt and explicit and intentional in his text to tell us that Jesus is God. We find the same thing in Hebrews. Hebrews is thought to be a homily or a sermon, and its primary focus is to tell us about the new covenant. What is the new covenant? How it stands in relationship to the old covenant? What's the same? What's different? And all of that happens around and through the life of Jesus. In the course of his teaching, the writer will discuss three main themes within Judaism, and that is the priesthood, the covenant, and the sacrifices. And he will make the point that the Old Testament version of these were necessarily incomplete, and it is Jesus who has come to fulfill them. And by that he means he is the more perfect version of each of these. In the course of his discussion about the priesthood, the writer likens Jesus to Melchizedek, who is a priest that appears in the story of Abraham. Melchizedek is different than all of the other priests in two ways. In giving Israel the law after the Exodus, God establishes the tribe of Levi, which comes from Aaron. Aaron is the high priest, and it is his descendants who will take up the priesthood. The priesthood in the Old Testament from that point on is a priesthood that relies upon lineage. It matters who your father was. If you were a priest, your son will become a priest. And so the priests within the nation of Israel were all within that line of Aaron, the Levite tribe. And so the priesthood depended upon your lineage. It mattered who your dad was and it matters who your sons are because it is through that lineage, through that from generation to generation that the priesthood remains intact. Melchizedek, unlike the tribe of Levi, had no parentage, has no lineage. Melchizedek was appointed by God. It is not by virtue of who his father was or what tribe he is a member of. It is, in fact, before all of that, God has appointed Melchizedek as a priest. Melchizedek also has no sons. There is no tribe or lineage that comes out of Melchizedek. And so the writer of Hebrews grabs Melchizedek as the example and says, Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek. And in doing so, what he's saying is, Jesus is a priest appointed by God. It doesn't matter where his lineage comes from. In fact, we know that he comes from the tribe of Judah. He is from the line of David. That is the line of kings. He is not and should not be a priest because he does not come from that line. He does not come. His lineage does not descend from Aaron. And so he is, by virtue of that fact, disqualified from the priesthood. He is a priest not because of his lineage. He's a priest because of the appointment by God. And much like Melchizedek, there will be no priest that comes after him. Jesus has no son. Jesus has no lineage that he leaves behind in the biological sense that establishes a line of priests. And so his priesthood, like Melchizedek's, is established by God and will be forever. That is the first way in which Hebrews shows that the priesthood of Jesus is superior to the priesthood of the Old Testament. It is appointed by God and it will be forever. One of the other ways that the writer of Hebrews tells us about the difference in the priesthood of Jesus has to do with where Jesus is now. In the Old Testament, we know, of course, that God was present in the Holy of Holies. It was the inner sanctum of the temple. There were a series of concentric courts, and in the very center of that was what was called the Holy of Holies, and this was the place that God was said to reside. This was where, we've said before, his Shekinah glory descended upon the tabernacle and then upon the temple. It was there which God 
lived. And once a year, the high priest would enter that temple to offer sacrifices for the sins, for the cleansing of the sin of the nation of Israel. On that day, when it was time for sacrifice, the high priest would have a rope tied around his ankle. And the other priests in the court would stand outside the Holy of Holies. The high priest would go in to offer his sacrifice. And this was for a very particular reason. And that was that no mortal, no human could stand in the presence of God. So that if the sacrifice were not sufficient, if God did not deem it worthy, if if God did not see that as cleansing, the high priest would die. And there was no way for them to return his body out of the Holy Holies without going in themselves and dying. And so they would pull him out with the rope. In contrast to this Old Testament practice and picture of the priesthood, the writer of Hebrews makes us aware that the fact that Jesus has died, been resurrected, and has ascended. The ascension is key. The ascension is the moment when Jesus returns to the court, returns to the right hand of God, and takes his rightful place on the throne. It is the high priest entering into the Holy of Holies once and for all in the presence of God. And it is the ascension and enthronement of Jesus as the new high priest that ensures the validity of the new covenant. This leads us naturally into a discussion of covenant within the letter. And here again, the writer will tell us that the old covenant, the covenant that exists in the Old Testament, was necessarily incomplete that that covenant made it possible for God to be in the midst of his people in the sense that he came to reside in the Holy of Holies. It is the new covenant that makes it possible that God writes his law on our hearts, that God comes to indwell with us, that he comes to live in our midst in a more complete and full way, not only in the temple, but everywhere. And this new, more perfect covenant is made possible, of course, through the sacrifice of Jesus. In the Old Testament, we're told that the sacrifices served to cleanse the space and cleanse the nation, to make it possible for God to come near but it did not offer forgiveness. And that's a point that the letter of Hebrews makes. It is Jesus, it is the blood of Jesus that cleanses us perfectly and offers forgiveness. It is the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus, which is the more and better and fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrifice. The Old Testament sacrifices needed to be made over and over and over and over again. Why is that? Because they were not sufficient. The sacrifice you offer today cleanses you of the sin you committed yesterday. But what happens when you go out and sin today or tomorrow or next week or next month? You once again had to come back and offer another sacrifice to cleanse yourself of that sin. The writer of Hebrews makes it clear to us that the sacrifice, the bloodshed of Jesus offers not only cleansing for the sins we have committed, but all the sins that we will ever commit. It is the sacrifice of Jesus that offers true forgiveness, not just cleansing. And whereas the Old Testament sacrifice was something to be repeated, annually the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. Periodically and with routine, people would come to the temple and offer sacrifices for various things. The sacrifice of Jesus was a one-time non-repeatable event because it was the perfect sacrifice. Through the many twists and turns of his sermon, the writer of Hebrews makes it abundantly clear that everything changes with Jesus. The Old Testament, though given by God and right and good, was necessarily incomplete. It served as a signpost pointing us to the time when God would send his Messiah and he would make everything right. It points us to, as he quotes Jeremiah 31, the time when God will live with and among his people, when he will write his ethics, his law, his purpose on our hearts, and we no longer need the written law to tell us what to do. As the sermon opens, we are told that he is the reflection of God's glory, that he is the exact imprint of his being, that Jesus is God. It is in reflecting upon this that it has been said, 
Jesus is God's final word about himself. What I want you to understand today, what I really want to drive home is this understanding that Jesus is God. And so when you want to know what God is like or what God thinks or how God feels, you go to Jesus. The writer of Hebrews himself tells us that in the Old Testament, God spoke through angels and through prophets, but now God has come to us himself in the person of Jesus Christ to present himself to us. We have a tendency in the church all too often to go to the prophets, to go to the speakings of the angels, to go to that Old Testament and build our picture of God. Now, what I'm not saying is that the Old Testament is to be done away with. Certainly not. Jesus affirms the Old Testament. The apostles affirm the Old Testament. The writers of the New Testament affirm the Old Testament. We're not shoving it away. But what I want to say to you and what the writer of the New Testament says, what Paul even says, is Jesus is the center that we first go to Jesus. We need to bathe ourselves in the stories of Jesus, the person of Jesus, get to know him through the writings, get to know him personally through time spent with his spirit. Once we understand who Jesus is, then we go back and we try to interpret and understand what is being said in the Old Testament. As Christians, we must always start with Jesus. It is what it means to be a Christian, is to profess that Jesus is God. He is the starting place. He is the key that unlocks everything else. And so when you want to know what God is like, Jesus. You want to know what God's thinking? Jesus. You want to know if God is mad at you? Look at Jesus. Jesus is always the answer, and it is in light of who Jesus was and the picture of God that he presents to us that we must reinterpret the Old Testament. Now, if you find yourself getting a little prickly or uneasy with that statement, think for a moment about Paul. Paul has his Damascus Road experience, and we're told in Galatians by Paul himself that he goes to Arabia for what we think is about three years. He spends three years trying to process the reality that Jesus was God. In light of his experience, in light of his confrontation with Jesus, this new knowledge, it changes everything for him. And he spends that time re-understanding what the Old Testament says. And when he comes back onto the scene, Paul's project is reimagining and re-understanding and re-explaining what temple means, what sacrifice means, what covenant means, what the priesthood means. Everything that exists within Israel gets re-understood and reoriented around the person and life of Jesus. This is what it means to be a Christian. The writer of Hebrews, as we read his sermon, does the exact same thing. And so as you go back and you read Hebrews, keep that in mind. What the writer is doing here is re-understanding the history, the story, the faith of the Israel people in light of who and what Jesus is. And my main point today is that Jesus is the key. Everything must start and end with Jesus. We begin by understanding who Jesus is. We go back and we try to understand the other stories in light of it. Once we think we know what that is, we come back and hold that up against Jesus and say, are these two things alike? And if they're not, we go back and we rethink. And so it is crucial. It is absolutely fundamental to the life of a Christian to know who Jesus is. So if you have not, And if you do not regularly read the Gospels, I encourage you to do that. We must be reading these stories. We must bathe ourselves in the sayings, the teachings, the life of this man to understand who God is. There is no other way. This is the story. This is the record. This is the testament of the church, of the apostles, to the man and the life of Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, if you are claiming that Jesus is the most important thing in your life, if you are acknowledging that Jesus is God himself, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal word in flesh to live among us, we must spend the time understanding and knowing who this man is. We must get inside 
the story. We must see and hear him work and talk. It is only when we know who this person is, when we know the character and being of Jesus, that we know the character and being of God, and we can understand the rest of the scripture. We can understand our purpose in the world. Today, my challenge to you is to do exactly this. Set a routine, spend time, carve out time, make time to be reading the story of Jesus. And as you do, may you be open to the presence and the reality and the person of Jesus. May you come to a full and true understanding that Jesus is love, that God is love, and that who Jesus is, the reality of his existence, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his very being changes everything. Amen.